From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. We're we're warming up a little. Good. Not by much <laughs> here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're we're just weirdly back and forth and back and forth here in in Orlando. Every time it feels like it's uh, starting to to get warmer for the better, then it just kind of changes on us, which is <laughs> you know, I'm okay with it because I love the cold, but I know a lot of other people are hoping that it goes away and Florida gets back to being Florida. Yeah, the, it's our weather's been that way too, and then it's dry, and then it's rainy, and it's cool, and then it's warm again, and well, warmish. And the weird thing is, is you know, I gardening is my hobby. Our yeah. Lenten roses that always bloom somehow right before Lent, they bloomed um, end of December, oh. beginning of January, when we were still in hard freezes. So yeah. I don't quite understand what what they're up to. But well. um, <laughs> so, I thought I'm a little surprised by that. So anyway, oh well, but it could be worse. I've I um, saw, uh, the, the countries a lot of the countries had really harsh weather. Exactly. So hopefully, uh, hopefully it starts looking up for people. So I know it's tough every year, but you know, don't don't wish anyone to be miserable all winter. No, no. I mean, I have friends and family that they live in the snow where, like, they go out to their car and the whole car is, like, frozen shut. Yeah. And, and uh, oh, my gosh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to complain about rain. Yeah, I miss <laughs> so. it. I miss it so much. <laughs> the snow? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, our daughter-in-law, well, now she lives in the snow area, but our daughter-in-law says that, too. And she, well, you know where she lives. We've talked exactly, about it, yeah. you know, near Titusville, where she said, she told me once they'd get like 15 feet of snow. I thought, how do you live in that? I, I, I just don't understand how you function. <laughs> and, um, you know, but yeah, she she loves it. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It feels it feels right when you're in it. I could, I could enjoy it for one day. Yeah, and then that, then that was it. I'd be done. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, in well, if you if you're uh, if you're hunkered down, warm by the fire, here we are. Craig and I are bringing you part two of our history tour of the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. Uh, last time we took you up to 1975, and that is where Tomorrowland really took off. So as we mentioned last week, these, of course, this is the, the other lost episode from October Yes, that, that we are bringing to you. And as we did last time, we are just going to take you back to those pre-Halloween days of yeah. 2017, <laughs> and um, and and 
and and enjoy um, the rest of our series on the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. Now, when we talked about last time, you know, when the park opened in 1971, you know, Tomorrowland was not yet complete. And as I mentioned previously, you know, there were very few attractions. So when the time came to complete the next phase of the land, a version of the People Mover was constructed along the Space Mountain. The Wedway People Mover opened on July 1st, 1975, based on the People Mover attraction at Disneyland in California. But this one did not utilize the propulsion system of rotating Goodyear tires that was used in the original, instead using linear synchronous motors. So Goodyear decided not to sponsor the Magic Kingdom version. The Edison Electric Institute was the original sponsor of this attraction. The Magic Kingdom version was designed the opposite from the Disneyland version. Instead of an open track with covered cars, it has open air cars with a ceiling over the track. And when it opened, the Wedway People Mover passed through or by the Carousel of Progress, If You Had Wings, the Circle Vision 360 Theater, Flight to the Moon, and Space Mountain. The attraction also drove over the Tomorrowland Speedway and under the Star Jets, where the loading and unloading station was located. The original narration was provided by longtime Disney Parks voice Jack Wagner, and in June 1985, his narration was replaced by the voice of ORAC-1, the commuter computer, which was used until July or June 11th, 1994, when the attraction received a makeover for the new Tomorrowland. In the spring of 1994, Tomorrowland underwent a large reimagining that changed the of the land from being a showcase of future technology to a working city of the future. The Wedway People Mover received new physical theming as most of the track was updated from smooth, googie-esque white form to boldly colored metallic structures. It was during this refurbishment that the attraction's name changed from the Wedway People Mover to Tomorrowland Transit Authority. A new narration was added and the tour led by Pete Renaday, broadcasting from TTA Central. The new name and narration debuted on June 12th, 1994. The new narration focused on Tomorrowland's new backstory and made references to the Tomorrowland being an intergalactic meeting place. This 1994 recording remained pretty much unchanged until October 2nd, 2009, which came shortly after the attraction had reopened following a five-month down period during the refurbishment of Space Mountain. Now, the TTA's backstory in a 1994-2009 version of the, of the attraction made reference to the Transit Authority's three different lines, the blue line, the red line, and the green line. The blue line, which was the actual ride, was Tomorrowland's intra-city elevated train system. The red line took riders off-planet to other destinations in the galaxy, whilst the green line provided local transportation to Tomorrowland's hoverburbs. There was a diorama of a hub station where all three lines intersect, located on the second floor of the North Show Building, which was the Interplanetary Convention Center. Other services provided by the Transit Authority um, 
interstate highway maintenance and long-distance space travel were alluded to in the ride's narration. Now, changes made in a 1994 narration over its 15 years of use included the following. Um, the replacement of the narration for the South Show building in 1996 when Delta Dream Flight became Take Flight. And this narration was replaced again when Take Flight was turned into Buzz Lightyear's Space Rangers spin in 1998. The 1994 narration for Space Mountain said, Now arriving in Space Mountain, Tomorrowland's Gateway to the Galaxy, presented by Federal Express, noting Space Mountain's sponsorship by FedEx. When FedEx dropped sponsorship in 2004, the narration was altered to cut off after Galaxy. A narration was played upon leaving the South Show building tunnel, mentioning the timekeeper from 1994 to 2006 when the timekeeper closed. The narration on the TTA mentioning the timekeeper was removed. The Tomorrowland Transit Authority closed on Sunday, April 19, 2009, due to a major refurbishment of Space Mountain and reopened on September 12, 2009. The closure was necessary because of the extensive construction work planned for the roller coaster and the inherent safety risks it could pose to Transit Authority riders. During the refurbishment, the People Mover Beamway was enhanced with new LED lighting that moves in time with the background music being played in Tomorrowland. Other enhancements included freshly repainted trackway and infrastructure, as well as new speakers for the ride audio system. On October 2, 2009, the ride received a new narration featuring the voice of Mike Brazell. The new narration is similar to the original Wedway People Mover narration and includes segments introducing all attractions in Tomorrowland, including Stitch's Great Escape and Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. The People Mover name was revived in the new narration, which refers to the attraction vehicle as the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People, Authority People Mover in of the previous TTA Metroliner name, introduced after the attraction's 1994 refurbishment. On August 5, 2010, the name People Mover was reinstated into the ride's name, changing it to Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover, and ride signage was changed around the track to reflect the name change. Despite Alamo Rental Car becoming the attraction sponsor in 2005, there is no VIP lounge for the attraction sponsor. Yeah, that's a missed opportunity. They should have one right as soon as you get to the top of the escalators. And, uh, well, sorry, speed ramps. Once you get up there, then just have a place where all those Alamo employees could sit down and have some soft drinks and a nice view of people getting on and off the people mover. Or mm -hmm. not off at all. Just on. <laughs> yeah. This, for me, is a must-do attraction whenever I'm in the Magic Kingdom. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so many people's go-to attraction for uh, for when everything's crazy, can't figure out what to do. Just go do the people mover. Uh, just nice and relaxing, kind of like the Skyway also was uh, in that that same sense. But it's it, it's just perfect. It's it's one of those things that you know tie together with our Space Mountain and. and in TTA, if we if we lost either one of those in our Tomorrowland, it would just completely destroy the land. Mm -hmm. And you know, this was something that Walt, you know, had hoped would catch on, and 
you know, urban areas would use the people mover. I know it was used in, um, you know, in an airport. Yeah. And, um, you know, and this was the, you know, the people mover was central along with the monorail to transportation in Epcot, the city. And so for all those reasons, I love riding the the people mover. Yeah, it's, so. it's true history. And then <clears throat> as she said, it's the only place where you can, uh, you, you can still see the part of that model. So Yeah, but, but look fast. I wish it would <laughs> slow down there. Well, you know, <laughs> take a picture. <laughs> yeah, I wish it would break down there right when I'm in front of it. But um, so and then we'd be it. we'd be lucky enough to be one of the cars that gets bumped, and then we just slightly <laughs> move forward so it's out of out of sight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, now an- another another attraction I have fond memories of um, using the same Circle Vision Theater space as its predecessor, American Journeys. The Timekeeper opened on November twenty first, nineteen ninety four. This was the first Circle Vision three hundred and sixty film in which Imagineers wanted to tell an immersive story and attempt a light hearted dialogue rather than just switching between scenes of landscapes, as had been done in all of the previous Circle Vision films. The attraction had long been on the Discoveryland USA proposal for the Magic Kingdom, and this project would have reimagined Tomorrowland into an American version of the Discoveryland being built at Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris. However, when financial difficulties arose because of the Euro Disneyland project, this Discoveryland project was cancelled. As part of the project, the attraction was to be extended into a restaurant next door to the attraction. The Plaza Pavilion was to be transformed into the Astronomers Club, where a stage would have featured actors portraying famed scientists, such as Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, or Galileo, who would appear in the restaurant and then be called back to the past by either Nine Eye or Timekeeper. However... The film was named from time to time and opened in the Magic Kingdom Circle Vision Theater, rechristened Transportarium on November 21st, 1994, as part of the new Tomorrowland expansion. Six months later, the attraction underwent some name changes. The theater was renamed Tomorrowland Metropolis Science Center, and the film was retitled as The Timekeeper. Unlike the previous films shown in the theater, The Timekeeper included a state-of-the-art animatronic as well as multiple special effects. Before the film began, guests were introduced to The Timekeeper, who was voiced by Robin Williams, and his robot invention Nine-Eye, voiced by Rhea Perlman, who he would be sending into the past as guests viewed history from her eyes. The nine eyes she had represent she had represented the um, nine cameras used in filming the um, show in the round, thus showing the view from one of her eyes on each of the nine movie screens. She was the latest development by the timekeeper, the inventor of the time machine. Guests were invited to be witnesses of the first ever use of the newly invented machine. Guests also watched Nine Eyes training videos, which included a plunge over Niagara Falls, a flight into a barn full of dynamite in Topeka, Kansas, a swirling ride aboard a a centrifugator, and hitching a ride on a space shuttle. 
the timekeeper used this machine to send Nainai into the past, first to the Jurassic period, supposedly an error, and then on to destinations in our history that included a meeting of H.G. Wells, played by Jeremy Irons, and Jules Verne, who, Verne, who is played by French actor Michael Piccoli, and inadvertently ends up bringing uh, Verne along for the best adventure, including a look at Mozart's childhood and Leonardo da Vinci's inventions through the modern world and into the future. Eventually, Nainai returns Verne to his proper time period, and the show concludes with many wisecracks from the timekeeper. And as guests left, timekeeper made plans to see other important events in history and in the future with his machine and Nainai. Uh, so, Craig, did you ever see um, Timekeeper? Oh, yeah. This was a family favorite attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much for myself uh, as I was growing up. This didn't really appeal to me the first, <clears throat> I want to say, two times I would have seen it. But uh, I think, you know, I, I was a little bit young for it at that point in time. And the fact that you had to stand, that always kind of took a hit against it but you know with robin williams i i obviously was able to recognize his voice at that point Uh, my dad was a huge cheers fan so Uh uh, of course rhea perlman is that was very appealing and and this was something that he he loved it was it was one that he would be quick to go to so that 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 eventually eventually took over and you know i got the chance to do it then on that uh, when i came in the year 2000 and that was that was i believe my well the yeah that was the last go around that that i think i got to have on that and and you know i i i miss it it's another one like kind of like delta dream flight it just it, it the the gap that it, even though what it was replaced with is very popular and still delights many people it's just not the same this felt mm-hmm. so tomorrowland in every way shape and form and it's its successor while different and unique just doesn't I agree. I, I thought this was so Disney, and and it was so perfect for Tomorrowland. Um, it, it was just so unique. I loved this show. I only saw it a few times, but um, I really enjoyed it. Now, yeah, as time no, per- it just it it worked well. It was a well made attraction, and it, I I think it it easily could have still been around today with with no issues, no bugs at all. Well, yeah, the only problem is as time progressed, the timekeeper began to fall out of favor with guests and attendance declined. So after being placed on a seasonal schedule in April 2001, the timekeeper was open on a sporadic schedule during the busy seasons. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, the attraction faced even harder times due in part to a general decline in tourism 
you know, um, after the terrorist attacks. Um, additionally, the film featured a scene of New York that included the now destroyed World Trade Center. Um, this prompted a change that saw the timekeeper's clock in this segment register the current year as 2000. However, the attraction remained open for another five years. During the time when Stitch's Great Escape was under construction, Timekeeper was open more frequently along with Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. On days when the show was not opened, the queue was a meet and greet for Disney characters such as Stitch and the Pixar characters Buzz Lightyear and Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and Frozone from the Disney Pixar film The Incredibles. Until February 2006, the Timekeeper in the Magic Kingdom was the last Timekeeper still operating, as the Tokyo Disneyland version closed in 2002 and was replaced with Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters in 2004, and the Disneyland Paris version closed in 2004 to be replaced by Buzz Lightyear's Laser Blast in 2006, although the Disneyland Paris version closed mainly because it lost its sponsor, Renault. In early 2007, the Timekeeper was replaced by Monstrous Inc. Laugh Floor. The, the attraction building still retains most of the elements of the Timekeeper, including the water columns in the queue and the basic Circle Vision Theater. However, the theater floor has been modified to include seating, and several of the screens are now covered by other show elements. Now, during the early 1990s, then, Disney CEO Michael Eisner released ambitious plans for changes to the parks as part of the Disney decade. Tomorrowland 2055 was the planned reimagining of Disneyland's Tomorrowland, and the Timekeeper was to be a showcase attraction, along with Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter and Plectu's Fantastic Intergalactic Review. Now, one promotional brochure had Delta Airlines sponsoring the film, but these plans were dropped due to financial difficulties within the Parks and Resorts division, mostly stemming from the billion-dollar losses incurred with the Euro Disneyland project. However, some clips of the Timekeeper could be seen in the queue for Rocket Rods at Disneyland, which used the Circle Vision 360 theater for its queue. Another plan placed Visionarium as an opening day attraction at the proposed second gate next to Disneyland, um, and that would have been called Westcott. The show featuring the Timekeeper would have been housed in a European Renaissance building in a European section of the Westcott version of World Showcase. However, Westcott was scrapped in favor of Disney's California Adventure. So, so that was the end of Timekeeper. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. So I, I know a lot of people probably wish that the theater wouldn't have been altered so much. So that way, after Robin Williams passed away, they could have reconverted it back in similarly to how, how Captain EO was able to be shoehorned right back in for a tribute mm -hmm. to to Michael Jackson. I would have loved that for for the timekeeper, but nope, monsters just took over a little too much. Yeah, yes. Yeah, now there's always been a rumor that Timekeeper is back there. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. That that the figure is actually still there. I I can believe it. I mean, <laughs> if it was cheaper to just build around it instead of 
take it out and then find a place to store it or find a new animatronic to reuse parts on, then why not just put a box around it? So yeah. that's that's Disney's logic. That's why that's why Buzzy's just still sitting up in his chair in Cranium Command to this day. Yep. Now uh, we've referred to this attraction a few times now. After a brief preview in late 1994 and subsequent changes as a result of that preview, Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter officially opened its doors in June 1995, and it was unlike anything Disney had tried before at their parks. Far darker in nature, it featured one of the most advanced audio animatronics in any Disney park – and heavily used binaural sound and special effects experienced in complete darkness. A warning outside the attraction's entrance alerted guests that it was intense and not intended for children under the age of 12, even though it had a height requirement of 48 inches. So let's take a look at what led to the development of this unique Tomorrowland attraction. So, encouraged by the success of Star Wars, Imagineers in 1987 began searching for another external property to transplant into Disney parks. Finally, Michael Eisner directed the designers to develop an attraction incorporating 20th Century Fox other Space Age franchise. Ridley Scott's Alien had debuted in theaters in 1979 and was still then considered to be a groundbreaking film with its special effects, xenomorph alien creatures, and a gritty industrial view of the future. Disney had acquired the rights to use Alien and had used it in the great movie ride at the Disney MGM Studios, which featured a scene aboard the Nostromo where a frightened Ripley hides behind a wall whilst the xenomorph pops out of the walls and ceiling to snarl at the guests. As an original story was developed, George Lucas was brought in to work on the project. This version's storyline had XS's text open house being a front for exposing human guinea pigs to an alien monster they had captured. After the alien menaces the audience for a moment, it is revealed to be sentient and desires to escape its captors and to free the guests as well. The excess scientists respond by trying to destroy the test chamber and leave no evidence, but the alien holds off their weaponry, raises the restraints allowing the guests to escape whilst leaving the sounds of the alien rampaging through the pre-show facilities could be heard. The story's grim tone would lead it to being further reworked. Eisner wanted the Imagineers to create a dark ride experience that would envelop the audience into the world of Alien. This attraction was to be called um, Nostromo. The dark ride would have placed guests aboard the spacecraft of the same name from the film. Each guest would have been armed with a laser gun and challenged to blast the alien as it attacked. Several in Imagineering were horrified by the idea that Disney Parks would bring <coughs> an R-rated film to life. They believed Alien had traumatized a generation with its gory effects and carnivorous creature and was too intense for a Disney park. Oh, times have changed. Additionally, Alien had presented a future opposed to Walt Disney's vision and philosophy. 
Whilst Disney's dedication for Tomorrowland had cast it as a world of wondrous ideas signifying man's achievements and the hope for a peaceful unified world, Alien did just the opposite. Set in a dirty, steaming, industrial spacecraft with a killer alien species aboard, it was entirely antithetical to Walt's vision. And it was horrifying. (laughs) Um, Those designers were also opposed to the idea of arming guests, especially young ones, with guns and telling them to shoot them during the ride. This seems to be a concern they overcame when developing Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin. Yeah, isn't that um, convenient? Yeah. Um, those Imagineers eventually convinced Eisner that alien shooting Dark Ride was simply not right for Disney parks. However... A young group of Imagineers was enthralled by the idea of a dark and sincerely gritty Disney ride. They secretly began to develop a plan to bring Alien to Disney parks. Guests were no longer passing through the turnstiles of the Magic Kingdom and Disneyland's Mission to Mars attractions. A new Tomorrowland in development for each resort presented the perfect opportunity for a new attraction in those show buildings. When they presented their idea to Eisner, he was delighted. It was perfect. Reusing much of the former theater would keep the installation costs low. And this new concept, this alien encounter, could be cloned at both parks when their Tomorrowlands went through renovation. By 1992, the Imagineering team who had developed Nostromo were dealing with a much different attraction than they'd Eisner had decided against using 20th Century Fox's alien xenomorph, giving Imagineers the tasks of designing a brand new alien creature, a completely new backstory, and a way to deliver all of that information to guests who would now have no prior understanding of the attraction. The show played to its first test audiences in December 1994. Guests were angry and responded that the attraction was much too intense. They reportedly said that whilst they expected Alien Encounter to be thrilling, they hadn't expected to be legitimately terrified. Even though Imagineers hadn't used the xenomorph, they'd still crafted a creature story and effects that audiences were unprepared for. Even signs throughout the queue reminding guests that terror was in all caps in the attraction's name, it did not prepare them for the experience. After six weeks of soft opening for testing and adjusting without ever officially opening, the attraction went dark. Ten million dollars and six months later, a revised show finally opened on June 20th, 1995. By this time, Eisner had lost his enthusiasm and passion for the attraction. He may have finally agreed that it was too intense for a Disney park. But too much time, effort, and money had been spent on the attraction. It had to open to the public. And this is what they eventually delivered. Guests entered the attraction by way of two individual pre-shows. The first show took place in a waiting room that held enough guests to fill the attraction's main theater. Displayed on overhead monitors, guests were introduced to XS Tech via small commercials for the company whose corporate symbol 
or corporate philosophy was if something can't be done with excess, then it shouldn't be done at all. The second show, hosted by Sir, which is S I R, a simulated intelligence robot, an excess robot voiced by Tim Curry, demonstrated excess text teleportation technology with the help of an alien named Skippy. Skippy was teleported from one containment tube to another, though he appeared disoriented and burnt after the experiment. I actually had a t-shirt with uh, with Skippy in his tube, and on the one side he was was fine, and then the other side he was burnt. So that's always stuck out with me to this day. (laughs) I I wish I would have kept that. I'm sure it got thrown out or donated at one point in time but gosh would that be cool to still have that yeah you could frame it yeah (laughs) did it say anything was there any text on it i'm sure there was i just remember the images so i didn't end up they used to sell the skippy dolls and i don't believe i ever bought one of those i i might have and that also went away at one point in time uh but but I definitely had a shirt. Well, after the pre-shows, guests entered a circular room of seating very similar to that of the attraction's predecessors. Instead of a small display screen in the center of the room's floor, however, guests saw a large empty teleportation tube like the one they had been introduced to by Sir. After finding a seat, a shoulder restraint lowered onto each guest as the lighting was dimmed. Guests are then introduced to a few excess employees who explain that one lucky guest is going to be teleported out of the chamber to another point in the galaxy. In a rush of inspiration, however, the plans change and instead an excess tech employee will be teleported to Earth. In order to do this, however, the signal for the teleportation device must be rerouted through a potentially dangerous and unknown point in the universe. Of course, it's decided to continue anyway. As the teleportation process completes, it's suddenly very obvious that something has gone wrong. Instead of the employee, a huge winged creature can be seen in the teleportation tube. The containment system is failing, and amidst the flashing lights and smoke, a crash can be heard as the creature escapes, leaving a shattered and empty tube. The power fails, and guests are thrust into complete darkness as they hear a maintenance worker attacked and feel the alien jumping around the room via their shoulders. As the employees work to fix the tube and contain the alien, you feel a hot breath on your neck and the low growl of the creature behind you. Soon the excess technicians are able to fix the tube and lure the creature back inside, where he is contained and presumably destroyed. And the attraction's cast was notable. Tyra Banks played the female alien who greets guests in the first pre-show video, although her lines were voiced by another actress. Tim Curry voiced the audio-animatronic robot Sir in the second pre-show area. In the original version, the character was named Tom, T-O-M 2000, and it was voiced by Phil Hartman. It had a much more humorous script. Um, Chairman L.C. Clench was portrayed by actor Jeffrey Jones. Dr. Femus is portrayed by actress Kathy Najimy, with Kevin Pollock playing um, her partner, Spinlock. So this um, 
So they spared no expense uh, with this attraction. Oh. So I, I take it because you had a Skippy shirt, you were a fan of this attraction. Oh, oh yeah, no, I, I mean, I won't beat around the bush. I was, I, I was definitely afraid of this for a long time. Uh, there, there was a lot of fear there. I, one of my uh, childhood friends, as I was growing up, we kind of went to to Disney World in off years, and so. A lot of times he got to do uh, some of the new attractions the the year before I was able to. And this happened with Tower of Terror. And then it happened again with with Alien Encounter. And so I, I know for a fact that he did have a Skippy plush. And so I was like started to introduce to what Alien Encounter was before I actually had the chance to, to even to even be a part of it and experience it. And then when I was, it just, I mean, it, it, it for kids, it absolutely got you. You didn't know what to expect. As soon as that room went pitch black, the maintenance person just, you know, getting his own, uh, hearing the breathing down your neck, feeling the restraints pushed down. Like it just, it really just, enveloped you into this mm-hmm. terrifying experience in in every way and it, so it was I, it was definitely a favorite of mine yeah i was scared of it but it that didn't matter it was it was just so unique and different and gosh i that i am one of those ones maybe it was just that it really was when i was a kid that's i grew up with it and that's why i have such an affinity for it but I I love this attraction. I I I know you know it, it went through a lot to get where it did, but it, it was perfect. It was shut down way way too soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed this trend, this um, attraction. Um, we when Carol and I took our children on it, they were in, I think in middle school. Carol despised this thing. She never went on it again. She absolutely hated it. It made her feel claustrophobic. I think at one point, didn't it even drip? like drool on you or something I, was one of the effects in yeah, it. Yeah, there was and, there was definitely oh, water effects in it too yeah. when when it came by you. Yeah. And you felt the breath and all that. Oh gosh, Carol hated it. Um our daughter did not care for it. Our son liked it, but he, he but um I yeah, it definitely was ahead of its time. I think now it would be accepted better the the effects in it were brilliant and the audio animatronic creature oh it were great it, it, it was all great yeah it, at this point in time if if they would bring back anything like it it would be a massive success mm-hmm. i mean it's yeah it, it doesn't require it requires a good animatronic in the middle um it, but it, all the effects in it they're just they're so basic it's it's just tricking tricking the mind and i think we now are we're in a realm with theme parks where it's about it's literally everything we do now is about tricking us to feel like we are wrapped up in this world and we're engaged and we're immersed in it alien encounter was extremely immersive and it it just it, it was it was way too ahead of its time but it I don't I don't know how I don't know how they could ever fix that. You know, Disney's Disney would never go back and say, you know what, we made a mistake with that one. 
we we should probably try to bring it back. That, that's never going to happen. But no. I, I wish they could rectify it in some way and and at least go down that path again and realize that you know what, maybe some people do want this type of an attraction here. Maybe it wasn't a great fit in Magic Kingdom, but maybe it would work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was wondering. Was was Alien Encounter out of place in a park that was made almost entirely for fairy tales? Um, would it have been more accepted if it had opened like Disney MGM Studios yeah, uh, in, instead? That's a great question. I mean, it's, it, it very well could have been. I mean, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have super fit in there. I guess if they would have if they would have pushed with the xenomorph theme and alien maybe maybe that that definitely would have would have worked, but heck, they they could have even I, I, I mean I I guess it could have worked there with where Epcot is now. It could have worked with that theme. So it it definitely it, it it, it had a place somewhere, and it it still has a place somewhere. Just mm-hmm. we're never never going to see it again. Yeah. Now, a game within the Disney Quest Indoor Interactive Arcade at Downtown Disney called Invasion, an extraterrestrial alien encounter, featured some of the excess tech mythology, with Chairman Clench offering excess tech-produced um, walker vehicles to help rescue a group of colonists although its gameplay bore no resemblance to the Tomorrowland attraction. Um, Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter was open for only eight years and throughout its operation it remained controversial. Alien Encounter beamed its last alien on October 12, 2003 though the official reasons for the closure range from operating costs to maintenance problems. The general assumption is that the attraction was simply too scary for the Magic Kingdom's younger guests and resulted in many complaints from parents. Eisner's expectation was that Alien Counter would be built at every Disney resort in the world. The space was already closed and cleared out at Disneyland in preparation for Tomorrowland 2055, which was later canceled. The space prepared for Alien Encounter would be repurposed as Red Rocket's Pizza Port in 1998. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure they've sold more money in pizza than uh, merchandise or anything could ever have been brought in for for Alien Encounter, but yeah, dang, it, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if it would have been placed at Disneyland. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, it was great. I, I just, I'll never forget the commercial. They used to play the commercial all the time mm-hmm. at the, the resort loop, and it even... I don't know if you ever had this, but there was a computer program called Walt Disney World Explorer. Yeah, I have it still. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And that's mm-hmm. one of very few videos that you could watch in the game. But I believe Alien Encounter, they had like a trailer for that. And that was one that you could watch. And mm-hmm. I I remember that mm-hmm. very fondly. So that it was even that was scary. And that didn't set you up enough for what the actual attraction was going to be. No, but every commercial showed it to be scary. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so I, yeah, I, I guess I never understood what the fuss was all about. But 
Oh, well. <laughs> um, now, construction walls went up around the extraterrestrial alien encounter in 2003, and one year later it would reopen, but the alien within was very different. Rather than entering excess tech on November 16, 2004, guests now entered the Galactic Federation Prisoner Teleport Center and Stitch's Great Escape, part of Michael Eisner's Ride the Movies initiative. The experience is set before the 2002 film Lilo and Stitch. Guests have been recruited by the Grand Councilwoman from the film to be guards for the Galactic Federation. After being taught the basic procedures of guard duty and the classification of prisoner hazard levels by a robot sergeant 90210, and this was a reimagined um, Sir Robot from Alien Encounter, and a brief comical reprisal of Skippy, who has been from Alien Encounter, Captain Gantu gives an alert of a level 3 prisoner being beamed to the center. Guests are then instructed by Pleakley over an intercom communicator off-camera to proceed to the level 3 prisoner teleportation chamber. After being seated in the chamber, which has changed very little from Alien Encounter, shoulder restraints made to resemble scanning units for DNA come down onto the guest's shoulders, and the prisoner is then beamed into the chamber via a large plume of smoke and is revealed to be an enlarged stitch. After a brief period of puzzled talking by Gantu and his two assistants, Stitch uses the flaws of the armed laser cannons. The cannons follow and destroy any genetic material, including saliva, and disables all power to escape, causing amusing chaos in the crowd. During this period, hydraulic pumps and small hoses in the shoulder restraints make it seem as if Stitch is jumping on guest shoulders and tickling their heads. When the power comes back on, the laser cannons continue their attempt to bring Stitch down. Again, using the cannon's fatal flaws, he manages to fire the laser cannons into the crowd. Shortly after using the diversion, he escapes to Walt Disney World. Cameras capture him traversing Cinderella Castle before licking the camera lens. Guests are then released from their duty and exit into one of two gift shops, Merchant of Venice, Venus, or Mickey's Star Traders. Stitch's Great Escape includes much of the technology and sets from the extraterrestrial alien encounter, the 39-inch audio-animatronic Stitch figure built by Imagineering reportedly is one of the most complex creations of its size. Other special effects include binaural sound, simulated laser cannons, and a pungent chili dog smell. Well, I'm sure if you liked Alien Encounter, uh, Craig, you must have loved Stitch's Great Escape. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> words. <laughs> Just so easily coming out right now. I, I, uh... I, I think it was bef- I, I did watch Lilo and Stitch <clears throat> before I experienced uh, before I experienced Stitch's Great Escape, and uh, you know Lilo and Stitch was such a surprise when when it came out. Uh, I it, sorry, no, I shouldn't say when it came out. By the time I saw it, it was a, it was a complete surprise. It it brought me back in and got me excited about Disney animation again. 
with the and you know it stuck with me through the marketing materials where the the trailers all leading up to to Lilo and Stitch were the 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 fun remakes of other Disney movies but then Stitch just popped up in them and uh it it was just Stitch seemed like he was going to be this big great character and I don't think he ever really achieved the status that Disney put him on and I mean they they kind of put him on a first place pedestal and I, I don't think he really ever earned that and then they decided to just go crazy with with sequels and spin-off television series and push Stitch down everyone's throat and I am not I'm still not sure to this day that it was ever warranted and you know Stitch trashing Cinderella Castle at one point and oh yeah the monorail spiels that he was a part of it just it was it was all over the place and at the end of the day it you know the stitch animatronic yeah it's super impressive even even still now it is it is incredible what they did with it but there was no heart or soul into the attraction the the best part about it is in the pre-show where you still have a chance it's seen skippy and then at least yeah. uh, at least sergeant's voiced by richard kind who you know, if you don't know him from the many, many movies and TV shows and everything he's been a part of, then maybe you'll at least know him as the voice of Bing Bong. So <laughs> there's there's always that. And that's that's those are about the two redeeming factors of Stitch's Great Escape. Richard Kind yeah, and I, the uh, animatronic. Yeah, I would. I, I was never a fan of this attraction. I thought the audio animatronic figure was impressive. Uh, I wasn't a fan of Lilo and Stitch when it first came out. I thought Lilo was a bit emotionally disturbed. Um, <laughs> maybe because I was a teacher. I don't know. I, I thought she definitely had problems. Um, the, the film has since grown on me. And um, I think Stitch was more popular in the Asian parks. Yeah. And so they thought it would that, that popularity would transfer over. So and I don't think it quite did. Like Duffy, yeah, very popular. I mean, he has a whole family. I mean, in in the Asian parks, and um, not not so popular here. Yeah, no, it's I. So, um, I understand the appeal of Stitch, and like I said, I was a, mm-hmm. by the time I finally saw the movie, I was I was actually a, a big fan of it. I really enjoyed it. It took me by surprise, but it. It was sloppy execution of a movie into a theme park ride. Uh, it, it and just it made no sense in context with the movie. It made absolutely zero sense. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, that was because it was before the film. Yeah, it, it just it, it it just didn't work at all. And it doesn't matter what what story they could come up with, go around. It just didn't make sense and still doesn't and now that's yeah. why we are where we are with it yeah well on september 21st 2016 it was announced that as of october 2nd 2016 uh, stitches great escape would switch to seasonal operation opening only when crowd levels at the magic kingdom peaked around holidays um 
Some cast members say that the choice was actually due to guest demand. Uh, guest satisfaction for Magic Kingdom as a whole is higher by statistically significant percentage points on days that Stitch's Great Escape is closed, meaning the park scores stronger with no attraction open in that location than with Stitch's Great Escape being open. And... Uh, he, and we are actually a little peek behind the scenes here, peek backstage. We are actually recording this episode on October 2nd, 2017, when we had um, an interesting change to Stitch's Great Escape. Um, do you want to talk about that, Craig? Yeah, literally, as, as of the time that we're recording this, just, I believe, two days ago, uh, a very keen observer at the Magic Kingdom noticed that Stitch's Great Escape, the sign had been altered, and I apologize, I don't have the copy right in front of me of the the official title, but basically, uh, the, the name has been changed to reflect that Stitch's Great Escape is no longer Stitch's Great Escape, but a Stitch's meet and greet experience inside Tomorrowland. Yeah, it's like... Character experience. It's like Stitch's... Yeah, Stitch's alien encounter... Yeah, yeah, character experience or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, so, it's playing very. So they've fast used and both loose. names. <laughs> they've used both names of the attraction. Yeah, for the new sign. And I understand why it was smart because it did confuse people at first. The fact that it's such Stitch's alien encounter and like big, and then well, character experience, and so it, at this point we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, essentially with it is it going to fully convert into just a character experience or is it going to be uh, something that can be easily swapped out when they want the ride to come back they'll throw up the sign saying stitch is a great escape and then vice versa we'll have to wait and see we'll probably know more around christmas time on what's going to be happening with that like right now during the this this time period when it's being released, it, it's one of the trick or treat spots at Mickey's not so scary Halloween parties. So it, it has no purpose being open at this point in time, anyways. But it, the it, its time is fully up. I completely understand why guest satisfaction is up with it being down. It's I I had of the few times that I did that. I never walked out of it with a group of people where there's even one or two people excited about it. It's always just been like this mm-hmm. slow march out of, okay, that, <laughs> that just happened. And I do know, I, I know people that love it. And I think a lot of that comes more from the character than the quality of the attraction. But heck, I would I would rather there be nothing there at all than something that's subpar to the standards that I expect mm-hmm. from Disney. Well, let's hope he never makes it into the Enchanted Tiki Room as he has done in other um, yeah. overseas parks. I know that. <laughs> I mean, we already talked about changes coming to the 50th anniversary. That one's been thrown out there along with Moana. I... And- I've heard that. I've heard the Moana one, too. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of more um, 
animated characters making it into the parks. <laughs> um, Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin officially opened on November 3rd, 1998. The attraction utilized the same Omnimover ride system and track layout as if you had ring, wings, if you could fly, Delta Dream Flight, Dream Flight, and Take Flight. But this time, the experience would be significantly different. Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin combines the excitement and competitiveness of a shooting gallery with the fun and wacky sci-fi theming of the world of Buzz Lightyear from the Disney Pixar Toy Story animated film series. The... Magic Kingdom's version of the attraction is the first version of the Buzz Lightyear attractions. Now, Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin begins when you enter the Star Command headquarters, and the queue is an audio animatronic Buzz Lightyear who uses a Viewmaster to warn guests about the evil Emperor Zerg's plot to steal batteries, known in this universe as Crystallic Fusion Cells, and leave the space vehicles powerless. Our mission is to use the laser guns on our ride vehicles to fight back against Zerg's alien army by targeting the Zs wherever we find them. Each time we hit one of the targets, the counters in our vehicles keep track of our overall score. There's a chart at the end of the ride to see how we compare to the rest of the new recruits. The attraction takes guests to a colorful and wacky scenes with alien creatures to the little green men to a couple of encounters with the evil Emperor Zerg. A joystick on the vehicle allows you to turn and spin your vehicle as you shoot at the targets. At the end of the adventure, after the on-ride photo, Buzz Lightyear is able to capture Emperor Zerg thanks to our efforts. Riders then disembark their vehicles, view their on-ride photos, and have the option of purchasing it as a souvenir of their battle with Zerg. Off to the side of the store is Emperor Zerg standing in a small prison cell. After passing through the store, riders re-enter Tomorrowland. So the installation of Space Ranger Spin impacted the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, or the People Mover, which runs through the South Show building. When If You Had Wings was the attraction, occupying the South Show building, three diorama windows were also positioned on the track, two on the right and one on the left. These allowed the Mexico, Jamaica, and Trinidad scenes to be visible to riders on the Tomorrowland Transit Authority in such a way as to hide all projectors, lights, and other show support equipment. The diorama windows were altered once more when A Few Had Wings was transformed into Delta Dream Flight. This was done because the windows no longer correctly lined up with the show scenes. The first window was replaced with backlit panels depicting the ride's barnstormer scene. Window 2 looked into the Parisian excursion scene from a viewpoint which heavily distorted the tableau's forced perspective. And the third window would have had people move riders looking directly into an extremely bright light. So to prevent this, the window was covered with plywood and black fabric. When Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin opened in 1998, the first window was refitted with the diorama of the hair salon and the second left open to look into the new attraction. At one point during Space Ranger Spin, it is possible to catch a glimpse of the people movers gliding past. We have a few fun facts here. The mural in Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spins Q was painted by Imagineer Chuck Ballou, and Chuck Ballou named a planet in the mural after himself called Chuck Ball. The three chickens 
found in the planet Z scene on Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin are from the Dreamlight Dreamflight attraction. Dreamflight speed tunnel is reused in Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin. And the batteries found throughout Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger spin have Made in Glendale on them. This is a reference to Imagineering's headquarters in Glendale, California. In 2005, the Walt Disney Company premiered a home version of the ride in the form of an internet video game that allowed users to connect with guests at the parks. The scores of each guest from the dark ride were tallied with the internet gamer and increased the points won. There was also an attraction at Walt Disney World Resort's Disney Quest with the name Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters, where players rode and controlled cars while shooting balls at each other. Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin was named the 2004 Disney Magazine's Reader Choice Awards for Best Magic Kingdom Park Attraction for Young Kids. And since its opening in 1998, Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin has not seen any major changes. So so is this a must-do attraction for you, Craig? Uh, No, not quite that much. I mean, it's one that I'll pop on if the wait's like... 10-15 10-15 minutes uh, but that, that's about where it does it for me I know people who are diehard fans of Space Ranger Spin and you know they're they're always going on it so that way they can they can either try to get that 999,999 and you know get that perfect score start over on a new a new gun because they already achieved it and and I understand the the benefits of that but for me this attraction is aged horribly especially with the when toy story midway mania came around and we saw how much better an interactive an interactive attraction could be it just it it, it killed this one and the fact that it's still still swinging away just kind of baffles me to a point but yeah you know it is entertaining i can get the same amount of entertainment though if i was on a dark ride without the interaction so i i would almost rather see this as uh, a you know do this as just a straight up dark ride with toy story characters and I've, buzz Lightyear. yeah yeah i've done that before just so i could see the sets and all that and yeah. the scenes and, be, and I'm a terrible shot, so it's like I don't care if I go on this or not. Um, just about everyone in my family, though, really enjoys this attraction. So if I go on it, it's because I'm going on with somebody else. Yeah, and that's- Disneyland's is a little better because we can take um, the blasters out of the holster. Yeah, and aim it, you know, better. Yeah, and it's I, you know, there's besides the fact that it hasn't been updated and it terribly needs it. It, it, it's not a bad attraction it's just it's not for me anymore uh, i've kind of i've kind of just grown old and tired of it so it, it doesn't have the repeatability for me but you know that's that's the difference it the i could do the enchanted tiki room for an entire day without being bored once and other people would look at me like i'm crazy so yeah, yeah. So, but I think I think that Space Ranger spin is here to stay for a while. Yeah, for now. <laughs> so, 
In keeping with what many Disney fans refer to as the pixarization of the parks, and Tomorrowland in particular, Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor opened on April 2nd, 2007, bringing an end to Circle Vision Films in the Magic Kingdom. The official opening was delayed from early 2007 to April 2007 after test performances in December 2006 resulted in a less enthusiastic response from audiences. This show was created to showcase digital puppetry, a new technology that Disney helped develop as a part of its Living Character Initiative. By using this new technology, Disney was able to create a show that allowed for the monsters on the screen to interact with the audience, a technique that had been successfully used in Turtle Talk with Crush in the Living Seas Pavilion at Epcot Center. Following Disney's announcement, of the new Monsters, Inc. attraction in 2006, the former Timekeeper Theater was reimagined for the new show. Despite significant renovations, remains of the Timekeeper are still present within the attraction building. In the waiting area, guests can still see the bubbling tubes that were once located in the Timekeeper's pre-show area. And in the main theater, the nine screens used in the Timekeeper show are covered from view, but still there. The attraction went through a few name changes during its development. The attraction was originally announced as the Laugh Floor Comedy Club, but didn't evoke a clear link to the Monsters, Inc. film to guests. This name was then changed to Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor Comedy Club, but it was thought that it was too long of a title. Finally, two weeks before the attraction was scheduled to open, the show was officially named Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. And due to the short time the attraction was renamed and the time that it opened, there was a significant amount of merchandise created with the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor Comedy Club name. This attraction is set after the events of the Disney Pixar animated films Monster, Inc. and Monsters University. Monstropolis is running on safe, clean laugh power, but even now it still needs more laughs to power the monster world. As a solution, Mike Wazowski suggests opening up Monstropolis' first comedy club. Humans will temporarily enter the monster world via a door the monsters have placed in the Tomorrowland Expo Center. Whilst guests are waiting in line for the attraction, they have the opportunity to submit jokes for the monsters to use in the show. A few of the submitted jokes are usually chosen. During their visit, guests will be entertained by Monsters, Inc.'s top comedians, where their laughs will be collected and converted to electricity. The show's unscripted nature is designed to make each performance unique. However, there are some common jokes that appear more frequently than others. As guests are seated, the theater's cameras will locate guests and provide humorous captions, such as, We'll treat everyone to churros, or has no idea where he or she is, or doesn't know they're on the screen, or always hides a third eye. The show will always focus its attention on a single guest, known as that guy, throughout the performance. Usually the use is as part of a punchline of a joke. For example, a monster might say, I know how I'm going to dress up for Halloween. I'm going as that guy. In 2008, the attraction was honored with a nomination for Outstanding Visual Effects in a special venue project by the Visual Effects Society. 
Now, Ron Schneider, who was the original Dreamfinder walk-around character at Epcot Center's early days, was part of the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor's opening crew and was a friend of the Monsters for roughly two and a half years. And since the attraction opened, the only major change to the show has been the addition of Monsters University references following the movie's release in June 2013. So, so Craig, I, I gather from your past comments, this is not a worthy successor to Timekeeper. No, and I want to put a – I don't want to be, like, overly critical of this. I think Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor – is a really great attraction and there's a really great premise behind it yeah you can argue that if you're a yearly visitor there's not a lot of repeatability to it uh, because a lot of the jokes are the same and it could get very tired and stale quickly but uh, i i think there's a lot of great things about monsters and glass floor it's just not in the right place and exactly that's the the story of of so many things throughout the history of Walt Disney World is the right attractions just not in the right place we've already talked about multiple ones going through tomorrowland and and yeah it's just it, it sticks out like a sore thumb in there i there there's nothing that anyone could ever argue to me to make it makes sense that monsters are in Tomorrowland. It just it, it doesn't click for me. And it never will. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's actually very entertaining. Just not in the right place. So Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I don't know where the right place would be. Or, you know, dump it in Disney Hollywood Studios along with all the other IPs that don't have a specific home. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it's cute. Carol loves it. Uh, every time we go, you know, to, you know, go to the Magic Kingdom, we have to see the show because she enjoys it. Yep. I but, even um, I even could have seen it being uh, being utilized somewhere over in like imagination. I'd been able to to see it there. Oh it's, yeah, you know, there's there is a sense of whimsy that goes along with monsters. So it, it mm-hmm. would have fit in. And Figment well could be a you know, Figment could be a special guest. A, exactly, <laughs> it could have been monsters and mm-hmm. and Figment, and then we could have just gotten rid of all this notions of needing Inside Out there, and Inside Out could go where it rightfully deserves to be, and that's in the space of Cranium Command, and start mm-hmm. using Wonders of Life as an actual pavilion and not as a giant merch shop for two festivals out of the year. Yeah, I agree. So, well, several times I've mentioned the new Tomorrowland retheming of 1994. And the most discouraging thing about most Tomorrowlands around the world for Imagineers is that tomorrow always becomes today and eventually yesterday. Uh, The Imagineers attempted to solve this problem at the Magic Kingdom by transforming Tomorrowland from a land that showcases technological advancement to one that showcases science fiction. The new Tomorrowland of 1994 was designed to be a real functioning city of the future. Guests enter through the Avenue of Planets, where towering, colorful, and kinetic architecture draws them right into the environment of a 20th century pulp comic book, where humans, aliens, and robots all live and work together together. 
Each of the land's attractions take place in one continuity. Tomorrowland is Earth's headquarters of the League of Planets and has its own Chamber of Commerce, Convention Center, Transit System, Picture Phone Service, Mail Service, and a newspaper, the Tomorrowland Times. Now, replacing the star jets and their Saturn rocket pylon is the kinetic rocket tower plaza with the Buck Rogers-themed rockets of the Astro Orbiter zooming around. The Tomorrowland Interplanetary Convention Center is rented out by Excess Tech, who's showing off their new teleporter technology. Across from it is the Tomorrowland Metropolis Science Center, where a robotic scientist has set up an exhibit on time travel. The Tomorrowland Transit Authority... Authority functions as the city's public transportation as it glides along overhead highways, pointing out the convention center and science museum en route. And so this simple cohesive storytelling explained how Alien Encounter and the Timekeeper could coexist in the same land. And unfortunately, this um, cohesive story has been lost with the introduction of the Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin, Stitches, Great Escape, and Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. So, Craig, did you enjoy the um, the redone 1994 New Tomorrowland? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's my Tomorrowland. It's what I grew up with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, part of it is the, the simpleness of that story you just explained how it all fit together you know it, it might not have made sense to the person who's standing on the outside looking at it but it, it actually did all fit together and that cannot be said about tomorrowland as it currently is uh it's we've already gone through it it's just the the concepts the idealism and it changed away from being story-based and went to to intellectual property-based and that's when it, it lost the story. And I feel like right now, you know, it, now we're throwing in Tron and in Tomorrowland and we'll, we'll see how that goes. But the one thing I do have to say in a positive light is I feel like Walt Disney Imagineering is finally starting to come back around in terms of storytelling and realizing that how important the story is to the entire immersion of an of a land or area or even a single attraction and that gives me a lot of hope for for the future of our tomorrowland in that they're going to start working towards developing a full story of it you know pandora was a huge step forward in making sure that we're going to secure a one overarching story for a land and we know that's going to happen also with with star wars galaxy's edge and toy story land it's it storytelling is at the forefront again and hopefully hopefully now that little things are being tweaked here and there around tomorrowland that they'll work on finding a unifying story for it again yeah and hopefully they'll do the same for disneyland's tomorrowland yeah as well now there are a couple of notable eateries in tomorrowland the restaurant known today as the tomorrowland terrace originally opened in 1973 as the plaza pavilion located on the border of main street usa in tomorrowland the plaza pavilion originally sold hamburgers hot dogs pizzas chicken and soft drinks the menu featured tomorrowland fantasyland and liberty square burgers a main street hot dog and plaza french fries when it was the plaza pavilion the restaurant sell uh, saw 
saw a relatively few number of changes. In the early years of the dining locations operation, live musical acts and other entertainment would perform within the pavilion. In 2005, the Plaza Pavilion was renamed the Tomorrowland Noodle Station, and the restaurant got a new menu featuring Asian fusion cuisine. The Noodle Station menu proved to be unpopular, and the restaurant began to operate seasonally. In 2009, the park began offering the Wishes Dessert Party, and this upcharge event allows guests to dine on various desserts and watch the Wishes fireworks show from a reserved area within the restaurant. In November 2011, the location changed its menu once again and was renamed the Tomorrowland Terrace Restaurant. And in 2017, the Tomorrowland Terrace began offering mobile ordering service. So I never ate at the Tomorrowland Noodle Station. That makes two so, of us. Um, <laughs> it's, oh, okay. I, so. I never had the chance to. It was never open. Yeah, it was never open when we went there either. So... And then there's um, Sunny Eclipse, the lounge singer at Cosmic Ray Starlight Cafe, which was the original Tomorrowland Terrace. Sunny Eclipse is originally from Unork on the planet Zork, a topsy-turvy town where the subways are up and the streets are down, and is known as the biggest little star in the galaxy and entertains guests with his Bossa Supernova and Eclipso musical stylings on the Astro Organ. During his performances, Sonny is backed up by the Invisible Space Angels, who joined his act after his original background singers did not show up for a performance on Mars. In between stays at Cosmic Ray Starlight Cafe, Sonny performs at weddings and nightclubs all over the galaxy. At Cosmic Ray, Sonny plays a 20-minute set consisting of eight original songs. My name is Sonny Eclipse, Bossa Supernova, Hello Space Angels, You Nork, You Nork, Cosmic Ray Starlight Cafe songs, sometimes referred to as Starlight Soup and Salad, On Oh Bright Little Star, and Planetary Boogie. The songs were co-created by Walt Disney Imagineering and composer George Wilkins, who had previously written and arranged music for the Food Rocks attraction at Epcot Center and the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience pre-show at the Disney MGM Studios. And during his act, Sonny also tells jokes and shares stories of his life. So do you always take in um, Sonny Eclipse's act? I... I do more often than uh, more often than I should. Not not necessarily because I'm eating at uh, Cosmic Wraith. I go on the record very often saying how much I dislike Cosmic Wraith, and I do. Uh, the last couple times I've eaten there, it's been just as bad as it always is. But Sunny Eclipse, I mean, it it just uh, let, let's be real. It is basically. The Disney equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese without using like, <laughs> Mickey Mouse, is it there? I mean, Sunny Eclipse is Chuck E. Cheese, and you're eating crap food while you're watching him sing. And it, it just everything about it, it should be terrible, but it's the, he is this cult classic now with Disney characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in terms of original characters created within the parks. I mean, you don't get much better than Sunny Eclipse. So I I love the show. I love it a lot. Hate the restaurant. 
Yeah. I haven't seen him in a while, but uh, I like the concept of it. So, and yeah, I agree with the food. The, Although everybody gets all excited about the fixins bar or whatever they call it, but um, okay, you can't. You it takes excited, a lot more than that to get me there. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know who gets excited about lettuce, tomatoes, pickles. I mean, these are things that should already be on a hamburger. <laughs> it's not something mm-hmm. you should have to fix up yourself. Putting ketchup and mayonnaise <laughs> is not fixins. That's condiments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, since this is Tomorrowland, let's take a look at the future of this land. Uh, Disney Parks and Resort Chairman Bob Chapek announced at the D23 Expo in Anaheim, California in June 2017 that the popular Tron Light Cycle Power Run attraction that opened at Shanghai Disneyland in, in 2016 will be built in a new space next to Space Mountain. Tomorrowland will now house two e-ticket roller coasters. The Tron Light Cycle Power Run is a neon-lit indoor-outdoor roller coaster. The attraction includes extensive visual effects, sudden speed boosts, immersive lighting, and reaches speeds of over 60 miles per hour. A rider's saddle straddle seats that resemble the light cycle scene in the Disney films Tron and Tron Legacy, which have become cult classics. When aboard the vehicles, riders lean forward and grip a set of handlebars, and a pad behind the seat moves up and secures the rider in place. Tron Light Cycle Power Run is expected to open by 2021 in time for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. And hopefully on last week's show, I talked about my experience riding the Tron Light Cycle Power Run. Yeah. So, Craig, is this something you're looking forward to? Yeah. Uh, obviously, with mixed emotions, the the main one being that Tron doesn't really fit in with the the look and the aesthetic of the rest of our Tomorrowland. And so that's it's going to be interesting to see how it truly fits in there and if it becomes something that we just accept uh thematically is varying but but uh, i mean other than that yeah i'm the very first time i saw a video of tron light cycle running in shanghai i was i was blown away i was one of those people saying when can i get out there to get to experience this attraction and i'm glad that now i don't have to necessarily worry about when do i have to get out to shanghai because it's coming here but overall it's i i couldn't be more excited for it i'm just not sure how it's going to do in in our park it's going to be very popular but it's going to be very divisive Mm -hmm. at the same time um and not so in what ways I I know you were going to mention something about it. Uh, I think the big thing is on the size of a lot of mm-hmm. people who do come to to our parks. And I'm not I'm not I'm trying to say this in a positive way and not negative. But we saw what happened with Flight of Passage when that first opened up, and a lot of the questions that that were that people were facing in terms of wondering whether or not they would be able to experience flight of passage because of how secure the harnesses were. But at the end of the day, flight of passage, well, as amazing as it is, it's a stationary motion simulator that 
really the it, it didn't need to be as constrictive as it is yeah it adds to the story but they they definitely loosened up on it and tried to work in the best way to get as many people on it as possible with tron light cycle power run that's not going to be the case it's a high speed roller coaster and i have a feeling they are going to be turning more people away than any other attraction that Disney has before and a move that many people will be quick to criticize the same way that they criticize Universal for, for manufacturing attractions that can't accommodate everyone. And that's, you know, it, that's where you have to step back and say, is would would we rather have this attraction here that tons of guests are demanding that they want to see it in the United States. They want the chance to experience it. Is it worth dealing with the blowbacks that may come from it just to bring it over here? And obviously Disney, Disney made the decision that it's worth it in the long run, which is kind of odd considering they can't even get solidified on whether or not there's going to be a third Tron movie, but it's coming and I will be there opening day. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. And I do think I know on the vehicles they do have uh, at least one bench style vehicle. I think on each train, so that I think if if riders don't quite fit yeah. in the light cycles, they can sit in the in the bench style. Yeah, and vehicles. So I mean, it's and that's that that is an option, but that's a it's a cop out. It's not the same exact experience, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, the the goal is to get as many people on as safely and enjoyably as possible. But I, that's not a word. But safely is, and that's that's <laughs> what it all comes down to. I just, it's it, it seems like a, a strange decision in in my head. But that also that comes from my experience at working uh, multiple attractions at Universal, where I had to turn many 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 people away on a daily basis based on size and and knowing that it's 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 hard to walk that line between wanting to be technologically groundbreaking but also accommodating everyone there's there's a very fine line between the two and this is going to be the first big test for for disney in terms of yeah, uh, yeah. in terms of this park well, and they should get guests through this quickly because the attraction's very short. It's only about one and a half minutes long. Yeah, so, which but... um, some people might think hey, it's over. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's anyway. like kind of the same way with Rock and Roller Coaster. Rock and Roller Coaster is a very short roller coaster, but if you pack on a launch and a lot of thrills, you just kind of forget how short it is. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it open here. So, Me too. And as is the perpetual problem with Tomorrowland, we are now back in the present. So, uh, Craig, where does Tomorrowland rank amongst you uh, for all of the um, realms in the Magic Kingdom? Mm. Okay, so if we're talking daytime, easily last place. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's it just as you've 
we've been gushing about every other land for as long as we've been doing this now, but uh, Tomorrowland's the one that a lot of the gushing that's been happening here is for attractions that no longer exist. And, uh, you know, during the day, it's just, it's another realm of the Magic Kingdom. At night, though, then I feel like Tomorrowland is a complete different experience uh, with the with the theming and the the lights on in there. And I think in terms of at night, the only the only land that is better than Tomorrowland is Main Street USA. And mm-hmm. so that that that's kind of where it, it falls in for me. In the daytime, it is my least favorite, but at night. It becomes my second favorite. Yeah, I agree. At night, I think it's spectacular with the lighting yeah. and all that. It's uh, and I prob I go to the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland way more than I go to Disneyland's Tomorrowland um, because it has two of my favorite attractions there: Carousel of Progress and the People Mover. And then Carol, you know, will go into you know Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor. Yeah. So. Um, and just Disneyland Tomorrowland is such a mess, and it's so crowded. I tend to avoid it. Yeah. So anyway, so so that's it. That really takes. Oh, so now uh, we sort of alluded to it along the way, but um, so if you could, if you were an Imagineer and you were told, okay, your job is to fix Tomorrowland, uh, what would you do? I oh. I mean, for me, it it all comes down to story, kind of like we talked about with Tomorrowland uh, 1994. It's it all starts with the story. If they don't have a story for what our Tomorrowland is, then it, it's just a bunch of independent pieces all placed in the the same area. And so the first thing you do is you get a theme, and uh, you you get the story. And then that will start to to bleed into what the theming of the area is going to be, and get that that one look down. Make sure that it all visually is very appealing to each other, and it all fits in. Which you know, as we kind of just said, at night I feel like everything works. Daytime not so much, but at night everything feels like it's in place. And then the next step after that, the expensive and timely one is figure out which attractions don't fit in that story and replace them or mm-hmm. don't even replace them at all. If you just have to drop them, drop them out. But the land, the land needs to tell a story. We've, we've been spending all this time going through all the different realms, telling the stories and Tomorrowland just doesn't have it. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I would do. What, what about you? Yeah, I think your Tomorrowland takes a lot less fixing than the Disneyland Tomorrowland. Yeah. um, Where there's just nothing to tie it all together. No, I I, I think that, yeah, Monsters, Inc., Laugh Floor, Buzz Lightyear, and um, Stitch's Great Escape need to be replaced with a story. I think the storyline that was there in 1994 could be be revived, (coughs) excuse me, with some cutting-edge attractions. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what. Um, 
because I'm trying to think of other theme, other Disney parks, if they have anything. And they, I don't think they really have anything we could bring over of oh, Tron, you know, which yeah. they're doing already. So, but it'd be nice if they could bring in things that aren't related to an IP. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. They want to bring in everything that's related to where, where there's already a built in audience. Yeah, I I yeah. almost I, I mean I know many people feel this way. I wish that Tomorrowland the movie would have been a success uh-huh. and would have done something because that could have been a great benchmark on where to go with the future of Tomorrowland and mm-hmm. figuring out a way to blend kind of you know a a very far off future but base it on the background of visionaries and and go at it from that aspect instead of saying this is what we think the future is going to be instead saying well this is the future based on the work of Walt Disney and Jules Verne and the, all these other all these other iconic people and if they could have went that route uh, that there could have been amazing possibilities but uh, you know then it I guess it all comes back to story. <laughs> With that, it just mm-hmm. it wasn't enough. It wasn't a strong enough story for a lot of audiences, and just not not done as well as people hoped yeah. for. But hey, that's life. Right, and now we've come to that very special part of the show this week in Disney History Quiz, featuring important events in in the world of Disney, whether it's the people of Disney, the Walt Disney Studio, or the Disney theme parks. And we hope that um, you'll play along at home, get into disagreements, but remember, no Googling. You have to um, play this honestly and fairly. So, for today's competition, we have Rhino coming back to see if he who can break the tie between mm-hmm. Craig and Rhino. Craig has won one round, and Rhino has won another round. So this is um, for this week of January 21st. The rules are you get three points if you don't hear the multiple-choice answers, two points if I give you the multiple-choice answers, and one point if I take away an incorrect answer. So uh, let's see. Um, Ryan, I'll give you the choice since you're our guest. Do you wish to go first, or do you want to pass it? To- I'll go. I'll go first this You'll time. Go first this yeah. Time. Okay. On January twenty first, nineteen ninety eight, this Disneyland attraction closed permanently. Nineteen ninety eight. Okay, I will need a multiple choice. Okay. A. The Wedway People Mover in Tomorrowland. B. The Rivers of America Mike Finn Keelboats. C, or the rocket jets in Tomorrowland, Ooh. or D, the Disneyland parking lot? Hmm. California Adventure, how old are you? I want to say the parking lot. Is that your final answer? Uh, no. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I'm torn between the parking lot and something in Tomorrowland. Because I, I, believe, I feel like California Venture has to be like 15 years old now, which would be, which would mean it opened in 2003 or 2002, which means they would have had to close the parking lot in 98. Um, 
I'm going to say the people mover. Should have gone with your gut feeling oh, there. <laughs> it was Dang the Disneyland it. parking lot. It closed permanently to make way for the <sighs> Disneyland Resort expansion, including Disney California Adventure, Downtown Disney, and Disney's Grand Californian Hotel and Spa. Do we know when the people mover closed? Oh, it, it closed. Was it long before that? You know, I'd have to look it up. But everything was around that same time. Okay. There was right. a lot yeah. so going in on in the 90s there. I know that Rocket Rods was open in 99 when I yeah. went was it? to okay. Disneyland. Because so so. that's the one it I felt like had closed that. last of those things. That's mm-hmm. why I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, because that was when they had the redo of yeah. Tomorrowland. So. All right. Um, okay, Craig, here's a chance to pull ahead. January 22nd, 2006, a celebrity-attended premiere is held for this Disney theme park attraction. What was the date again on that, sorry? January 22nd, 2006. Okay, multiple choice. A, Mike and Sully to the rescue at Disney's California Adventure. Tower of Terror at Tokyo Disney Sea is B. C, Expedition Everest at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Or D, Atopia UFO Zone and Stitch Encounter at Hong Kong Disneyland. Gosh, um, I'll go with, I'll go with Mike and Solly, I guess. You are correct. Yeah, I would have went with it. Everest. I was, I had no idea. Everest, I know that was open when I came in 2005. That's the only. Was it? Okay, because when I moved in 2007, I wasn't sure if it was, think. like, they were like, that's the newer thing here. And I was like, oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, this Mike and Sully to the rescue replaced the infamous superstar limo. Mm. Of course, um, the Monsters Inc. attraction had been in soft opening since December 2005, but it officially opened on January 22nd, 2006. Okay, Ryan, here's your chance to catch up. Okay. This is for January 23rd. These two Disney theme park attractions made their debut on January 23rd. What year? I'm not giving you a year. Oh, oh, <laughs> tricky. Okay. Ooh, January 23rd. January. What would have opened in January? Um, I probably need multiple choice for this one. Okay. All right. A, Buzz Lightyear Laser Blast at Disneyland Paris and the Mark V monorails at the original Disneyland. C, Celebration, a Dream Come True Parade at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World and the Mark V monorails at the original Disneyland. C, the Mark V monorails at the original Disneyland and the American Idol Experience at Disney's Hollywood Studios. D, Dream Along with Mickey and Celebration, a Dream Come True Parade at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney American World. Idol. Uh, that was C? That would be C, the Mark V monorails and American Idol. The American Idol experience. That's my guess. For January 23rd, that is your final guest? Yes. yes. I'm guessing because I was in the commercial and I filmed it on January 14th. So I'm oh. guessing it's that, but I could be wrong. Okay, you could be and you are. Oh, um, man. It's... it's you sure you weren't in the commercial for the Celebrate a Dreams Come True parade? Oh, that was going to be my other guest. Uh, that, was, uh, that, that debuted in 2009, and the new Mark V monorails debuted at Disneyland in 1987, both on um, 19, uh, both on January 23rd. When American Idol—I th- know this because— uh, 
if you know me from the other shows, I met uh, my partner on January 15th, but I met my friend Ashley, who Craig also knows because we play on a softball team together, on January 14th of 2009, and we were filming a commercial for American Idol at Hollywood Studios, and then I remember all the idols came and did their thing, and that's that's where my train of thought went. So I know that opened... In January or February. What did you do in the commercial? I waved my hands around like this. Oh, so this is <laughs> so good. you can see my. This arm. is good for an audio podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, How you did that? I waved my hands like I just don't care. <laughs> you can tell it's me because I have a bandana on my hand, but that's how I knew that was my oh, big claim to fame. Is this on YouTube? This commercial? I, I, it might be now. It was really hard to find when it first came out. It's the girl sweeping. Uh, it's supposed to be like a Cinderella story. So she's in her house sweeping with a broom, and then starts singing to the mic, and then she's on the stage. Okay, crazy. You have to, if you find that, yeah, put we'll, it in our show notes. Yeah, we'll try to find that. <laughs> Spot Rhino's arm. Okay. Okay. So, well, and do you still get residuals? <laughs> I wish they YouTube? paid me. Yeah. Um, okay, Craig, for you, January 24th, 2006, Bob Iger, president and chief executive officer of the Walt Disney Company, announced this event. I would say I'm going to just go ahead and guess instead of the multiple choice. I would say the very first D23 Expo. No. 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 It it's um it's actually he announced that they agreed to acquire the computer animation leader <sighs> Pixar. That was my second oh, yeah. one. In an all stock transaction total to be worth approximately oh, D23 didn't even What billion. year was that? 2006. Six. Yeah, D23 didn't come till 2009. Yeah. So that was stupid of me. But I wanted to give you a chance. Whatever. <laughs> you can't. That's why I guess the parking lot wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ryan, back to you. So you okay. can still get in here. January 25th, 1990, the Walt Disney Company and this Fortune 500 company signed a 15-year marketing agreement. Gosh, I feel like I might be. Uh, I'm going to need multiple choice. So, is it A. General Motors, B. Coca Cola, C. Eastman Kodak, D. General Electric? And this is 1990. Oh gosh, January because they have relationships with all these people. I can't make this easy. And Kodak, I feel like would have been around until <clears throat> was around until around. I feel like it was after 2005 before their thing was over. That just means they signed it for 15 years in 1990, right? Is that, well, you can't tell me. Read me the question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I can reread okay. the question. On January 25th, 1990, the Walt Disney Company and this Fortune 500 company signed a 15-year marketing agreement. Oh, I'm going to say now, Coke. You are right. It is B, Coca-Cola. I shouldn't have even asked for, mo- uh, for multiple choice because I was going to say Coke before I even yeah. asked for the multiple choice. They signed an agreement that Coca-Cola products will be used exclusively in all theme parks, and Coca-Cola will use certain Disney characters in its advertising. And in 2002, they expanded their multi-year agreement to feature Dasani bottled water mm. at the U.S. parks, resorts, and the cruise line. So. All right, so that's that's now three to two. Okay. All right, so Craig, back to you. For January 26th, this Disneyland attraction based on a popular film debuted on January 26th, 1994. Sorry, say that one more time. This Disneyland attraction based on a popular film debuted on January 26th, 
1994. Uh, I'm just going to take a wild guess again, just to keep things fun and spicy. I'm going to say, no, because I don't think that was built yet. Uh, what the heck? I'll just do it anyways. I don't th- I don't think Toontown was built until like 95, but is it Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin? Yep. See, you are spicy. Yes, it is Roger okay. Rabbit's cartoon spin when in did Mickey's Toontown. I didn't think that was, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Roger yeah. Rabbit that Toontown one had been built that late, and that Roger yeah. Rabbit had would have been and it opened that late. after Toontown opened. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yes, this of course was inspired by the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There are sixteen audio animatronics, fifty nine animated props, and twenty special effects. And this is the first ride through attraction that allowed guests to take control of their vehicles as they followed the track. Okay, very good. Six to ah. two. Oh, Rhino, let's at least see if we can make this respectable. Okay, so okay. January 27th. Walt Disney Productions received approval to move forward on this project on January 27th, 1969. 1969? Mm-hmm. The studios. Hmm. Well, Walt Disney Productions. Oh, Keep in mind that was the name of the company, was Walt Disney Productions. Oh, well... It's not the Florida project, is it? <laughs> that, that, they would have needed approval before that, I would have thought. The building of the Magic Kingdom? Is that your final answer? Yes. Okay, the answer is D, Mineral King Ski Resort in California's Sequoia National <laughs> Oh, wow, okay. Right. They, um, the U.S. Forest Service on this day in 1969 approved Walt Disney Productions' master plan for Mineral King to be built in an area of Sequoia National Forest. Uh, Disney had been refining the plans for a self-contained alpine village since 1965 hmm. when they were awarded a preliminary permit. And it's expected the, the resort will open in the winter of 1973. However, Mineral King will ultimately never be built. That's, okay, that's what I was going to ask. Did, was it after his passing? That it, or he, it was, after yeah. he passed away. Okay. Uh, so it, 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 almost the original Epcot received the same fate, never came to the fruition. Yeah. That it, but that we, we got Country Bears Chamboree out of it. Okay, good. Yeah. That was created for Mineral King. Good. <laughs> So, well, Craig, six to two, and of course, this means that that uh, you know that Craig, Craig, the reigning won champion, two out of yeah. three. So, I, next week we will have someone else on the show who will challenge Craig in in this week in Disney history quiz. We'll see who it is, and who knows, maybe in the future we might even have some of our listeners who fancy themselves as uh, you know. A, big Disney historians. Maybe we'll have, have you on the show yeah. to to compete against Craig for the coveted title of um, winner of this week in Disney History's quiz. Yes. All right. Well, you know, at least, uh, you know, at least, you know, Ryan got, you know, that, that year's supply of uh, rice the San Francisco treat. Yeah. So. <laughs> he, he was a good foe, but I think I've learned for the future, I'm just going to start 
taking the multiple choice at all possible times instead of trying <laughs> to be the hero and always always make the the bold guesses but yeah i'm gonna I, i'm thinking of, of of changing the rules just a tiny tad where you know if you steal the question person gets it wrong and you steal it you still get one point oh i like that I like yeah, that a lot. I, I might do that. So I've, now that we've run through three of these. So so now out there, our listeners, let us know, how did you score against Craig and Rhino this week? And and how are you enjoying um, playing along with us on yeah. our This Week in Disney History quiz? Because this is new for us and we'd be interested in hearing from you if you're enjoying it as much as we are. And yes, we will have another opponent uh, for Craig um, next week, so stay tuned, and we'll let you know who our our special mystery uh, challenger will be. Yes. So. so many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including "Since the World Began," Walt Disney World: The First Twenty Five Years by Jeff Curdy. Walt Disney World, The First Decade by Walt Disney Productions. Secrets of Walt Disney World by Jim Corcus. A few websites and articles that I checked out, including Yesterland, the Disney Wiki, Disney History, Tomorrowland Then and Now, ImagineeringDisney.com, and an article by Chuck Mirachi for the Diz Unplugged entitled Disney's If You Had Wings, Looking Back 40 Years. The Floridaproject.com and Theme Park Tourist. I'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her invaluable work locating the additional material I needed for this episode. Well, since this is the last week of January, our regular listeners would expect, that, expect us to say, see ya in April. However, a new day has dawned in this new year for Connecting with Walt, and we have joined the weekly lineup of shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network, so we will be with you every Friday. So look for us next week with the return of our very special guest and friend, Disney historian and author Jim Corcus, who shares stories about Walt Disney from his latest book, Call Me Walt, Everything You Never Knew About Walt Disney. And and we had a great time yeah. with Jim. We we talked. We spoke with him when we were um, when I was out in Orlando. Yeah, it with, was. Uh, it, it made it all very fun to be in the same room again together. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, most definitely. So, Craig, how can our listeners connect with you during the week? Uh, of course, you can always find me. Uh, yeah, on all of the weird random things I do throughout the week on the Diz, whether it's Daily Fix, the shows, uh, this, that, or the other. And like always, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Teleclaster, and I will try my best to entertain you and every once in a while <laughs> complain and leave you questioning what's going on in my life that I hate so much. Oh, well, I think you need more than 280 characters. There. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> and, and you can send me um, emails, messages, and all that at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, follow me at mbowling121. On Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling, and that is the page with the Connecting with Walt logo. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz, and Craig is going to tell us about our new Connecting with Walt Twitter account. 
Yeah, uh, we told you about it last week uh, that we have our Connecting with Walt Twitter account. Hopefully by now uh, it's being used a lot and most of you are following it. Uh, of course, it's at Connecting Walt and that's it. Yes, there's no with in there. It's just at Connecting Walt because there's a character limit. And, you know, of course you can find it through our show notes page at disunplugged.com. But uh, we're still we're still working on it, trying to make it make it as entertaining and educational and helpful as possible. So uh, if you don't follow along yet, please search us out and find us on there and and we'll we'll get it all going. We'll figure it all out. And if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland Edition archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, or you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>